0: Welcome to the Brown Girls Journal, a bi-weekly podcast turning our entries into conversations.
1: We are your hosts. My name is Rodlin.
0: And my name is Anushka.
1: And today we're going to talk about navigating whiteness.
0: We've chosen to take a bit of a personal approach to this topic for the last episode of the season. We'll be starting with how we've navigated whiteness while growing up.
1: As students at predominantly white institutions,
0: and now tackling our relationship to the Midwest. So a little backstory as to why we chose this topic. I think it was kind of fitting um, to end the season on a note of race, considering the title of our podcast is named the Brown Girls Journal. Um, And that kind of just goes to show that like, while we've talked about a bunch of different things this season. We kind of have race as a lens of seeing all of these different things and like that's the lens that we do see the world and that's the like not the one thing, but one of many identities that like we can't just erase and I think it just affects everything that we see. Um on that note, Rodlin, what's been on your mind as a brown person this summer?
1: Yeah, I mean, what a question. I think This summer has just been such a unique time to be an American, I guess, and also to be a global citizen with the pandemic that's been happening, but particularly um, the way that this tension between, I guess I would say, black and white Americans um, has just really ruptured this summer um, into. I don't know, a volcano of rage that has really been, you know, the undercurrent of the summer um, that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police um, back in May. And I think particularly as a brown person living in America, a lot of what I was thinking about this summer was how to use my voice in my different circles um and kind of bring in more people to this movement to the Black Lives Matter movement and also to you know more social justice movements as they've sprung up this summer or gained more traction um especially as a Filipino American um I wouldn't say we're notorious for um not being as involved with like race relations in America but I would definitely say that Filipino Americans and Filipinos have taken a back seat um, in these movements and in speaking up about these issues so I think a lot of my focus this summer was to kind of see what I could do as a person to kind of call in a lot of people to these spaces and these conversations and also deal with a lot of my own biases um as a brown person living in America um yeah what about you I'll volley over the question to you (laughs) Anusha
0: yeah uh yeah there's so much to say honestly I feel like you tacked on like a really good point which was um like speaking as like an Asian American as a part of the um Black Lives Matter movement because I think that's like a a perspective that like really came into focus for me um with everything happening yeah it's just crazy to think about like how much has happened since the beginning of the pandemic with like anti-asianness um mm-hmm. not is anti-asianness anti I think that's a term yeah. sure okay <laughs> um yeah with anti-asian um just harassment um and and then you know moving over to anti-blackness i think there's really complicated relationships with race within our communities like mm-hmm. i think what you said with the filipino community goes is the same with the indian community something that i really liked was being able to really verbalize everything and normalize mm-hmm. us talking about these things because i think As brown people, we know a lot of the injustices, and we've, like, seen a lot of injustices. We know they're happening, but I think something that I learned was, like, really important is, like, being able to talk about these things, like, with my parents, like, um, and just with other people, too, like, and I also feel like another thing, I feel really all over the place, because this is, like, such a huge question, but another thing that I've kind of been that's been on my mind um as a brown person this summer is just navigating my own emotions with everything and learning how I can help best because everything has clearly been so intense Mm -hmm. and I think this was a question that I've always had like in college with my activism as well and in trying not to burn out and stuff but I tend to get very like emotionally invested in everything (laughs) I'm sure by right reason but um, yeah it's it's really hard sometimes to separate yourself from everything that's going on for the sake of your own mental health and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about actually. Mm -hmm. I think this whole summer I have been entering a lot of new spaces where I normally wouldn't be talking about race and have been talking about them more clearly and loudly than I have been before, and it's been really scary, but at the same time, it's it's honestly made me feel a lot more empowered as a brown person as well, mm-hmm. so I think that's, you know, if there's some hope in this, I think that I've been able to create my own va- vocabulary mm. with um, experiencing everything yeah. and in a whole new way, and I think that'll be helpful moving forward as well
1: yeah um i know that this was our check-in topic and meant to be a little shorter but i will just add on this really interesting that dynamic that i think happened this summer where as you were saying it was really normalized to talk about race and i think it was interesting because while race has been normalized in certain spaces that per se wouldn't necessarily be brought up otherwise or like obviously the summer truly in any space you stepped into and race was brought in people would not question that but like in the past like maybe they would have or maybe there would have been more pushback i feel like maybe an outcome that i would have anticipated would have been to feel like there was less of a weight on my shoulder i feel like there have definitely been spaces where I felt like the burden of like fixing race relations was on me and yet there was a lot of questioning people's sincerity and people's motives with talking about race and is it only cool quote unquote or is it only okay right now to talk about it because suddenly it's trendy and cool and I think that we'll go into that a lot more later uh, yeah. but it's also just been something that's been on my mind a lot this summer so yeah
0: yeah no i totally second that like honestly we could do a whole episode on this summer but i i do think a lot of um just a lot of questioning overall of
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, my own understanding of the world outside me the people that i know or i thought i knew mm, yeah et cetera, et cetera. but i do think um It'll be interesting to reflect back on this episode when, by the time it gets released, Mm -hmm. because we are pre recording all these episodes, obviously. So, who knows what'll happen by then? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I guess, wait, actually, this will be coming out on the election, right? Because,
1: like, happy election, y'all! Yeah, so
0: (laughs) I hope everyone voted. Yeah, I
1: hope you mailed your ballots in a few weeks in advance.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting. We shall see how things develop. Yeah, but...
1: and how the tide turns in the next four years. Hopefully, there is a turning that occurs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, in terms of race, I guess it makes sense to start from the very beginning. <laughs> so, Anushka, do you want to tell me a little bit about... Um, how you experienced race in your childhood
0: i moved around a bit while growing up so i was originally born in india and then at the age of one my parents immigrated with me to iowa city iowa in the dead of winter um it was the first time they had seen (laughs) yeah it was the first time they had seen snow Um, they came from like a huge bustling city so yeah Iowa City I was definitely the the complete opposite Um, and yeah and then after that we stayed there for um, a bit and then I think in first grade I moved to Omaha Nebraska and then fourth grade moved to um, Chicago Illinois, and then lived there for a couple years, and then came back to Omaha, Nebraska, um, where I finished up middle school and um, went to high school. So, uh, a Midwest gal through and through. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she really
1: did a Midwest tour. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Um, but I would say that race for me, I always felt like an outsider um i think as far as my own racial identity i really didn't feel as though i had like an indian community that was integrated into my school life Mm. until hmm, i don't know actually yeah i guess it wasn't until late high school where i kind of started to think about my indian identity In terms of school, but I still never really felt like I had like that kind of Indian community there. Just because even if there were other Indian kids, they weren't Bengali. So, it was, like, completely mm. different. And I think that's, like, a misconception that people had. Like, I... Oh, my gosh. I used to remember all the time, like, kids being like, oh, like, do you know blah, blah? Just because they're the other Indian kid of the school. Mm,
1: yeah. And I was
0: like, no. Because we don't go to the same brown parties. We're a completely different community and, like, ethnicity. Um, Problems
1: of the subcontinent. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but, yeah. So, I, I guess I really didn't start to reckon with any of that until later um yeah I always felt like an outsider because if it wasn't a predominantly white school like when I was in Chicago it was predominantly black and Latinx so you know I still was kind of an outsider and like it's really interesting to even think about those experiences because, you know, it wasn't like my problems were solved once I went to mm. a, a predominantly POC school. Like Right,
1: a, mon- a minority within the minority. Yeah, so
0: I guess, yeah, race for me was kind of... I didn't reckon with it until I went into high school, I would say, because mm-hmm. I then I uh, started joining clubs like Gay Straight Alliance and <laughs> Diversity Club. I think I was so passionate about, like, all these things that were happening in the world. And I was starting to connect that with, like, identity politics and realizing that mm. activism is also, like, a way that I connected with my own racial identity. Um, and, like, that's what actually led me to, like, caring about all these other things that are mm-hmm. happening in the world. Yeah. Um Yeah, so...
1: That's a lot of intellectual work for a teensy (laughs) little high schooler.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think before, you know, like, I didn't necessarily... Like, I couldn't articulate it, but I definitely always noticed it. I always Mm -hmm. noticed it. Um, Yeah, I guess, when did you feel like you were different? Or when did you realize that you were different? Yeah,
1: I mean, like... I think similar to what you were articulating and correct me if this is not what you were feeling but I think that there was always since my youth so I was born in New York City um lived in Harlem for the first four years of my life but like truly had not gained any true consciousness <laughs> at that point point. Um, and then after that my parents moved out into the suburbs of Westchester New York which is predominantly white very affluent county um and I think similar to you there was this always a looming presence of difference Mm -hmm. and being an outsider and being other but I could never pinpoint it and genuinely I didn't even come to terms with the fact that it was race until like college and like not even until halfway through college, I would say, Um, and I think that it was because of this indoctrination into whiteness that I was, this track that I was started on um, from such a young age. Um, In kindergarten, I was put into ESL courses. kids made fun of what my grandpa would pack me um for lunch if any Filipinos are listening pandasal for the win um but I think that because I was kind of sold this ideology of whiteness so early on in my life and I was able to enact it pretty well I would say um for the entirety of my life um I think that it I couldn't pinpoint the fact that it was my race that was setting me apart because I had internalized all of this whiteness Mm. um in my actions in my thoughts in the way I dressed in the way I acted or the way I socialized with people or tried to socialize with people I think that I began to embody whiteness so much that like I couldn't recognize that it was a literally like my skin color in the mirror that was setting me apart from people. Um so yeah, I definitely think that like being told, "Oh, you like can't speak this language," was definitely um a point of like huh, like as a little 4-year-old, but like I think after that and then, whoa! what kind of accent just came out of me my brownness is coming out is forcing its way out of my voice box <laughs> um, what was I saying <laughs> after that it was kind of like here are all the tools to undo all of your brownness to undo all of the things that make you different and we're going to show you how to assimilate so well that you don't even notice it yourself or you don't even notice that so much of you was erased in yeah. this process
0: yeah yeah um it's interesting that you said your you could not pinpoint that race was the differentiating factor um, and yet
1: it was like the most apparent you know? <laughs> yeah
0: um and i actually find that really interesting because I think I always knew that it was race I just Mm. didn't know what to do with that information Mm. um because I was quite like like I remember very distinctly being like thinking about my skin tone in comparison to other people oh yeah um and like even just like I think this just goes on to like talk about like you know beauty standards and like trying to assimilate like you were saying like you embodying whiteness like me thinking about like the texture of my hair and how it was so frizzy Mm. and like you know why couldn't I just look like other girls hair Um,
1: why am I not blonde right
0: and then weirdly when I was in Chicago like why didn't I look like these other POC kids like and, and it's so crazy too because like I do think You know we think about beauty standards in a very like oh white blonde kind of like Mm -hmm. western like um archetype but it is so interesting that like actually what you're surrounded by really does influence like how you see yourself and like what's absolutely like cool or like what is um acceptable um
1: Right, and I think that there are so many manifestations of those racial differences, like, right, like, right now, we are just talking about beauty standards, and, like, maybe as a teen, I was like, why don't I look like all these other girls? Maybe I'm just ugly. (laughs) And it's like, no, actually, like, you've been handed, like, European white beauty standards that you literally were not born with. You are not ugly, you know? So, like, I feel like because there are so many different facets and so many different manifestations it all boils down to race but maybe that's why i was having so much trouble pinpointing it
0: yeah no definitely um because i think maybe the reason why that was the case was because i don't know if you experienced this but i definitely always tried to put the blame on myself like i never Mm. thought it was something outside of my control like i always Mm. thought that i was doing something wrong i was just weirdo who wasn't fitting in like it had nothing to do with like And that's the whole point of, like, race kind of being, like, an external force that, like, you Mm. can't control that, like... Right. And... That's just how people are going to see you, but, like, you can't control that, and I couldn't really grapple with that. Like, I literally was like, what can I do better? Like, tell me.
1: You're like, maybe if I straightened my hair and also wore all these same brands as all these other girls and begged my mom for uggs as I cry (laughs) in the kitchen until she says yes, like, maybe then, like, all the boys will like me and all the girls will want to be my friend.
0: (laughs) Very specific anecdote there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of trauma around Ugg boots there. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I guess we can talk about, like, our families maybe a little more. Yeah. And how that played into um, Totes. this
1: whole thing. I think that there are a bunch of factors that come into play here. But my family never really had, like, discussions about race. Um... Or if they did have them, they were more of like coming from a defeatist standpoint Mm -hmm. or an acceptance standpoint. And I know those two are deeply (laughs) um, contending, but I will explain, I guess. But so a little background on my family. Um, Very stereotypical of a Filipino-American diasporic family most of the people in my family are healthcare workers so most if not all of them were able to come to america on visas that um were granted to them because they were healthcare professionals um so I think, and also there's a huge um, colonial-imperial relationship there between the U.S. and the Philippines, and I will not get into that here. Maybe (laughs) you guys can just read my thesis or something. Um, But I think that there is a lot of, you know, gratitude and indebtedness that is in my family to America and to whiteness, I think. Um, so I think that because of that, like, the U.S. is the reason that they have their American dream, you know, um, and I think that because of that, we were never really told to question things, um, we were never really told or taught to, um, maybe question our place in society, even if it was subordinate to white people, um, and I think that class also plays a big factor in that. I think that when you're maybe marg- marginalized in a racial, um, in the race <laughs> arena, but not necessarily in the class arena, again, because I mentioned that a majority of my family is in healthcare, care, um, you don't feel the need necessarily to speak out. So I think that my family in particular really, not plays into, but enacts the model minority myth um and I think that something that Kathy Park Hong said in the book Minor Feelings um where she talks a lot about the model minority myth is something that is very typical of Asian Americans is like just keep your head down don't make any trouble they're letting you do your thing here without much disruption and like if you are to speak out or step out of that then like obviously like there will be repercussions and there will be retaliations so i think that for the most part my family has really kind of internalized and accepted this second tier citizenship almost yeah, what about you, Anushka? I know you have a pretty small nuclear family. I don't know if that also yeah. affects the racial... And you've moved around so much, so...
0: Yeah, I, I think um, kind of on a similar note of, like, this idea of, like, America has given you so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like, you are gaining so much by coming here. And it's sometimes hard to, like, really look in the face of you know all the bad things that happen when you get Mm -hmm. here too um Mm -hmm. and I will say like I yeah it's just me and my parents (laughs) that's who I've grown up with I don't have any siblings so I've always been very close to my parents so I think I've been privy to like some conversations that maybe like wouldn't normally be trusted to a child not to say that they like Mm. you know were like inappropriate but like for my age but I think they've just always trusted me with like kind of having heavier conversations or even just more so like yeah more um like nuanced and intellectual yeah mature mature conversations um but I don't know like I think something that I always think about is how my parents are also kind of outsiders in their own communities like Mm. i i kind of think of them like that um i don't know if they would say that (laughs) themselves but
1: they're like what are you talking about
0: (laughs) (laughs) um yeah they're listening to this right now being like um
1: excuse me i think i fit in just fine thank you lanushka
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i i think um maybe less outsiders and more rebellious uh, Mm. or yeah (laughs) they're
1: pretty like rad (laughs) um i think they've
0: always kind of had like quite um like leftist politics um when they were back in india um they had the first love marriage in their family um on both sides actually i'm pretty sure yeah i think um and yeah and then they they came to the states and my mom was the one who like led that call like she was the one who was like yes I want to go to the states, and I want to seek opportunities there, and then my dad followed. Um, And, you know, I think they've always kind of been vocal, at least at home, about their thoughts on the Bengali-American community here, which I always find very interesting because, um, not to out them, (laughs) but (laughs) um, I, I think, like, they aren't afraid to like question kind of the ideals that like the Indian American community has and like kind of question all these stereotypes that we fall into and like what is bad about that and how we should be you know more nuanced and I think a big part of that is like even like for example like me deciding to like go into humanities um Mm -hmm. in college like they were very like you should follow what you want to do and what you want to study, which might not seem like a big thing to other people, but that's actually a huge thing. That is thing.
1: a gift <laughs> to an Asian child. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah,
0: and... Yeah, I think that a lot of that was because they saw how, like, other um, Indian-American uh, parents would, like, really pressure their kids to, you know, become a lawyer or a doctor, and, like, a lot mm-hmm. of that is because oh, you've gotten this chance, so you need to, like, make the most of that. And a lot of times that's material wealth um, Mm -hmm. is what you need to gain. But I think they've also just come from a very, like, academic background where they really, like, love and appreciate academics and that whole space. So I think they were – they cared less, honestly, about, like, material – goods and that kind of part of the model minority I think myth of like you know Asians being able to like climb up the financial class ladder I would say and so they've always you know they haven't been as self-conscious about like oh do we have a new car or blah blah Mm -hmm. blah like random other things that I feel like was always like a point of conversation um, in the community but yeah all to say that I think that it's interesting how our families can also impact like our views of race and our own Mm -hmm. reckonings with race as well um and also how i still internalize so many things about my race despite my family being very liberal like Mm -hmm. i still took gen chem freshman year and i mean part of that was because my parents were scientists so (laughs) i was like i always like respected science and i just was like, you know what? Maybe I have it in me because my parents are scientists. Ah. <laughs> um, but I did, like, I couldn't accept that I wanted to be like an English major until way long later. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, and I think it's interesting because my parents never pressured me to go any sort of way, but it I still felt that by society. Right. So,
1: yeah. And what does it mean when like the only success that is presented to us as attainable has the prerequisite of Giving up your passions and your dreams in yeah. order to get it, you know? I think that that's definitely, at least among Asian Americans of multiple generations, that is like a strong held belief.
0: Okay, I guess that leads us into the next section, which is all about race and college. How did your relationship with race change when you got to college, Rotham?
1: Yeah, um, the short answer is a lot. (laughs) The long answer (laughs) is much longer. Um, I went to a PWI in a predominantly black city, which is a very interesting dynamic, I would say. Um, but not a space that I was unused to, Um, and I think that because of that, I was not able to, again, pinpoint this feeling of unbelonging until much later. Um, I think that, as I mentioned before, my racial reckoning really didn't Happened until halfway through college, and I think that to be honest, it didn't really happen until after we got back from abroad. Um, and just as a refresher, or for anyone tuning in to this episode without having listened to the past ones, um, Anushka and I studied abroad in Denmark, um, so up there, up north in Scandinavia, <laughs> where everyone is white, um, and <laughs> I don't know if maybe it took that very extreme setting of no. Denmark and of whiteness being a tool of othering but also a lot of other things like making us other like we were American in a European country and we didn't speak the language yada 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 and I think that maybe it was the fact that It was such a stark difference that really accelerated my thinking about race and my thinking about my positionality and all those kinds of things. Um, So I would say that in college, again, I had that feeling of like, why am I not connecting with all these friends that I quote-unquote have like or I guess Mm quote-unquote friends that I have like why am I not why is there something like missing there and it was after I got back from abroad that I purposely started to seek spaces of color Mm. on campus to jump into and belong to um particularly I joined Mosaic which is um The women of color initiative on campus shout out to all my mosaic sisters um (laughs) and really kind of started those conversations about race outside of the classroom and kind of questioning it but I think that the thing in college that I struggled with the most was being a woman of color and having the desire directed at me be from majority white men um Mm. this notion of like fetishization was always in my mind even though i have historically only dated white guys um we (laughs) can unpack that in a later episode but um
0: so much to talk about so
1: much we are only grazing the tip of the iceberg um but yeah i think that was the most salient facet of my life that I was thinking about race and me as a racial being and now I'm just saying academic words and I'm so sorry everyone (laughs) (laughs) race college you go (laughs) uh yeah I think
0: it's no secret that like the university is a radicalizing space Mm -hmm. and that's probably why so many people of color experience that when they come onto campus and they're also away from their homes for the first time Mm -hmm. potentially and away from their families maybe um and like kind of like that whole life that they had before coming to college because, Mm -hmm. you know, you think of college as, like, oh, you can totally start to explore yourself in ways that you might not have been able to when you were, like, at home. Um, And I think something that really stuck out to me was seeing a lot of cultural orgs Mm. because I, yeah, I think, like I said before, like, I always saw myself as an outsider growing up, and while I had diverse friend circles... um, And, like, those were, like... I had, like, always had a close-knit group of friends growing up that I would... That would kind of, like, keep me going through this whole machine. Like, they were the people who... Since I didn't have siblings either, I think I leaned on them in even more, like, intimate friendships to be able to, like, give myself to be my... To give myself freedom to just be myself. Mm -hmm. And like, kind of be able to shield myself from, like, whatever, um, shield myself from the negative, like, ideas of my own identity that were coming from the outside. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what helped me get through those times. Yeah. And then when I came to college, seeing people lean so far the other way into their culture was, like, kind of a shock to me, and I honestly kind of rejected it. Mm-hmm. Um, Because I just was like, that seems so extra and Mm. unnecessary. Um, And then, you know, I realized that's okay. That's like how they want to see their... Like, they want to have those spaces. And I think those spaces are so important. Um, I just happened to make friends through other ways but I always noticed myself making friends with people of color mm-hmm. even if they didn't come from cultural orgs so mm-hmm. in the same way I ended up seeking out those people even if I didn't Great. seek out those spaces um you just and I think that's a really did it on your own oh, yeah.
1: DIY yeah, exactly. cultural
0: group <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think like that's okay too like I think we all just come at things from a different angle and that is perfectly fine Mm. I think I was actually going more through like a political Mm. activist sort of like reckoning when I was in college because that was the first time I was able to see like okay how can I actually put these ideas that I learned in high school of like these concepts of diversity and inclusion but now how can I see them actually play out um, in real time And mm-hmm. like kind of make a difference on my own And like what does that even look like um, So yeah I I would say Probably the height of that was During my sophomore year right before I went abroad mm-hmm. um, And that was probably Because of the 2016 election mm-hmm. um, And also You know being in a sorority And then dropping that sorority mm-hmm. And just And then also you know from the transition of being a freshman to a sophomore, we basically had a separate uh, like area on campus where all the freshmen lived. And then like, you know, kind of being integrated into the rest of the campus for the first time, I was like, wow, like maybe the communities I had freshman year were kind of man made in a weird way by like the university <laughs> in the sense of like, You were taught that this was this community Mm -hmm. that you had but then the reality is you know you kind of have to fend for yourself right after you get like the comforts of being a freshman and really being pampered and having your own dining hall Mm -hmm. and all these things and then you're like wait i now it's harder for me to see my friends we're all over campus and i think a lot of these sounds things kinda sound pretentious now considering like kids can't even go to campus a lot now because of the pandemic. Um or they're being forced to choose um and risk their lives. But at the time it was definitely like a lot of thinking about like what do what do I want in friendships Mm. and um yeah, like I guess yeah, what do I want in friendships and who are the people I wanna surround myself with?
1: Yeah, I feel like This could also be a total other episode, but I feel like there are so many worlds curated and handed to you at university and sometimes even on, like, false lines of commonality. Like, you're all freshmen. Be friends. And, like, everyone's, like, (laughs) scared shitless and they're like, okay, I'll be friends with anyone. And I think that college is, like, that really special time to, like like you said, distill your values and distill what it is, what facets of yourself you want to, you know, be at the forefront of all of your friendships. Um, And I think that it's really interesting what you said about, you know, people who really either dive headfirst into cultural orgs and people who back out and, like, why those dynamics exist. And I think that it's really interesting because also as i said why do i keep i keep focusing on this notion of like the breakdown of the nuclear family but like that's also what college is like you're not in this family unit where like this culture is binding you together and i feel like at least for me in my hometown all i did my whole life was trying to undo the culture of my family you know like There was an invisible line when I stepped into my house and when I stepped out of my house. The language that I spoke, the food that I ate, the way that I acted, you know? Um, And I think that without that kind of invisible line, you kind of... And without having to perform either like, I'm American or like, I'm Filipino or like, whatever. um, You kind of then are able to distill like, who am I without having to act Um,
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Which is also really nuanced as well, because so many people are also enacting different identities on college campuses that are so different than their home lives.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's so true, actually, because, you know, I'm, this episode is making me realize, like, how important, like, the Bengali part of Mm -hmm. my Indian identity really is and like that was kind of like the dividing line of why I maybe couldn't reckon with my racial identity quicker because I really didn't see myself in any kind of Indian like representation Mm. if it was at school or like on screen or really anywhere like I just felt like I was still an outsider because even if like, I even remember thinking, like, on, like, how excited I was when, um, the, uh, Indian cultural org on campus, um, had a Durga Puja, and I was like, wow, this was, like, one of my favorite holidays at home that I totally missed, but I didn't even realize, like, how much I missed it, Mm -hmm. and I also didn't even realize that there were other people who celebrated it in the same way, and, like, or, like, in different ways, and, I think a lot of that is because like you know I there were there were a lot of like south Indians mm. like that I would see at school or like I, I don't want to say there were a lot but <laughs> but if there were other Indians at school they would probably be south Indians most likely and so I just felt like their culture was so different mm. that I didn't really even feel a part of that either and that's kind of what I expected in college as well and that's kind of why I avoided it at first because I was like well how am I supposed to relate on the basis of being Indian if they're not even the same type of Indian Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah I don't know it's really interesting like piecing it all apart because I do think like it's a lot more nuanced than people think Mm -hmm.
1: and even like thinking of India as a subcontinent and as like a monolith like that's so I think is the general outsider perception um yeah. but also that gives me a lot of um never have I ever vibes so if you guys <laughs> want to check it out on Netflix it's a Mindy Kaling's new comedy series um,
0: yeah if you haven't already seen that I don't know what yeah have what have
1: you been, been doing. doing I guess like protesting in the streets so <laughs> uh I'll give you yeah that. the two facets of the summer um Yeah, I mean, for me, I think, again, there was this huge reckoning of realizing that I spent my whole life trying to align myself as closely as possible to whiteness. And then really realizing that it was like public enemy number one. And I think that that was like a huge ideological shift for me and being like, wait, it's because I was trying to enact all of these things that I felt so restricted all of my life. Um, And I think that that really came out in a lot of ways and the further I kind of went into my studies which were all humanities and social justice centric, like the more I learned about whiteness as this like really harming thing Um, and I think that I don't know, I think it's really interesting that the way that our college experience aligned to fucking American history like the election of he who shall not be named (laughs) and like You know, so I mentioned that I, like, went to college in a predominantly Black city. I went to school in Baltimore, and the summer before I arrived as a freshman was... Or not summer. The spring before I arrived was when all the Freddie Gray uprisings happened. So I think that there's such this alignment of, like, national reckoning with, like, our college experience that is so, so, so unique but then also created the conditions for us to participate like also in addition to those two things that we were also in college during the first women's march and i was only 40 minutes away from that and i participated um but i've like since um really worked through my own thoughts about marches and like performative Mm -hmm. activism we can go into that a lot later I want to hear your thoughts yeah. Anushka.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I do think it's crazy like how much has actually happened when we were in school. Like I think there was a lot of turning points for American history mm-hmm. and um kind of also like a collective consciousness mm-hmm. like raising of what does it actually mean to march because I remember right. them being so trendy. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> marching was like the thing.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even this summer, like, granted, the conditions are a lot more dangerous, but people are still out there with their, like, nice-ass signs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting, because now it feels, like, more intense. There's something
1: more on the line, I would say, in putting your physical body out there.
0: Right. But I think back then it was, like, very much still, like, a kind of, like, photo op sort of
1: it was very Being, like demonstrative. Like yeah. Ooh, I'm an ally.
0: <laughs> right. And I remember even feeling like, um, actually like terrible at one point because when the women's march was happening in D C like a couple of my friends in um that was a part of the club that I was in, Vanderbilt Feminist, they were gonna drive up and mm, wow. So I went to school in Nashville but um they were gonna drive up to go to the one in D C and That's far. I yeah, and I was really excited because I was going to go with them, and then I had this uh, conversation with my parents, and they kind of told me, like, maybe double think that because I was kind of going through the process of becoming a citizen, and they were just really scared of anything happening, mm. even though, like, we are quite privileged in comparison to other people trying to get their citizenship Mm -hmm. like I had my green card like I've lived here my whole life and yet they it just goes to show like that they were still scared and then I decided not to go and I cried a lot about Mm -hmm. it because it it made me think about my citizenship to this country and what rights do I actually have um that are like public
1: right Yeah, I mean, like, also thinking about, like, the Indian Revolution that happened, like, while your parents were young. Like, that context was totally different and, like, I would say more dangerous than, like, what was happening in 2016. So, like, the context that they were working out of as well as, like, young revolutionaries, like, was so different from, like, the weirdly, like, commercialized, like, capitalistic fucking... Uh, ambassadorization like that was like the 2017 like women's march like i will well clearly i did not choose my words carefully but i don't want to discredit that whole movement and the fact that that is now an annual thing but i think like we should also be really critical i was also in like a feminist theory class that semester that the march was happening and we were talking a lot about like white privilege and like white women being able to descend upon the capital and take like coach buses and flights out to dc or even like road tripping up from their campus university because they had the material means and like as you pointed out that not a lot of people would point out like citizen privilege to do so um I think that yeah I mean there are a lot of things that determine who can and cannot protest and I think that whiteness plays a big factor in that
0: yeah and it also plays a factor in like legitimizing movements Mm -hmm. as well like I think that's why the women's march was viewed so well Mm -hmm. like it was received quite well because it was overtaken by whiteness right. and so you're like speak. fuck
1: is this the 70s again
0: <laughs> <laughs> um I, yeah and i don't know like i think it's it's crazy like it definitely really affected me at the time because i didn't even end up going to the nashville march uh women's mm. march which was really sad i just felt like so disheartened by it all mm,
1: i think. interesting okay so i guess now that i've rescinded my coast loyalty and have now become a brown girl of the midwest this question is all the more pertinent um but how has living in the midwest kind of shaped your experience with race
0: um yeah that's a big question um but i think overall like I will say I've really appreciated being able to move around a lot growing up. Like, Mm -hmm. I think at the time it was very hard, obviously. Um, But it's become a huge part of my identity and why I think I'm able to, like, adapt easier and just, like, be able to, like, lean into new perspectives easier because, like being able to experience the midwest in so many different ways has made me see the midwest in a much more nuanced light Mm. than I think a lot of people do, especially from a racial lens. Mm. Um, And also I think, you know, even going to school in the south, and not even going to like necessarily like the coast, which I always kind of imagined myself to, Actually, no, I didn't. What am I talking about? Because I thought I was going to go to state school. (laughs) Okay, whatever. (laughs) I think I always imagined eventually going to the coast, you know? Um, But I think... I feel like even though I've always lived in urban areas in the Midwest, I have a much more... Like, I have more consciousness about rural um, issues and that part of the identity of the Midwest, which I think is like a huge part of it and also just yeah a more like complicated relationship with race I would say my racial Mm. identity because I see myself as a midwesterner and I think Mm. that it sometimes is conflicting with my racial identity and it makes me feel like i can't really claim that space sometimes because it's often viewed so as so white and like not me (laughs) not accepting of me yeah
1: i even remember like something you said in the past about like when we talk about like capital r republicans Mm. or capital w white people you're like yo these are low-key my people as a brown girl like i've grown up in the midwest my whole life so like there are emotional ties there and there are like other kind of ties there that that yeah complicate and add nuance to your perspectives on race which are super healthy and good yeah
0: no definitely like i think that that became so salient during the 2016 election, like, mm-hmm. especially dealing with it on campus, because I think, it's, oh man, people were so quick to just say anything, really, and I, it was actually the first time that I was like, wow, liberal spaces aren't where it's at right now, <laughs> like, I think, especially white liberal spaces, I would say, um, more so, um, but yeah, I think they were so quick to put like urban versus rural into like these boxes Mm, and I mm -hmm. was like that's not really how this works like and like it's just so much more complicated than that and I think it just goes back to like you know them being able to put an easy label on it when in reality like there's different kinds of whiteness as well for sure yeah. What would you? How do you feel like now entering the Midwest? Um, and like, yeah. What do you? What are your? What are you excited about? And what are you also nervous about?
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, so many questions. So many <laughs> exciting things. Um, I don't know. I think that to be honest, when I first got my acceptance um, to UW Madison of course elated mm-hmm. <laughs> by the acceptance but i was also like ooh do i see myself in the mm-hmm. midwest do i want to relocate and dedicate two or years of my life there um there was definitely a lot of hesitation and i don't know if that was just like my coastal stubbornness mm-hmm. i lived on the east coast my whole life and really have only visited Places on either coast, like truly, I think this is like my first time in the Midwest, <laughs> and I moved to it. <laughs> um, so that's Best always fun and new and adventurous, yeah, right? Just, just try a new place out and move to it. You have no prior knowledge. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, coming out of so for listeners, a refresher I was living in Denmark. Um, right before this move right before the pandemic so I moved back there for work after college um and the alienation that I felt there was like unmatched and of course it had to do with whiteness but if I think it had to do with a lot of things so I think that I'm really carrying those anxieties of alienation here And honestly, it's been pretty chill so far. Everyone's so fucking nice. There's so much (laughs) land. Um, Suddenly, I'm not in Madison anymore, and there are (laughs) cornfields on either side of me. I'm really excited about all the produce that is being sold locally. I'm actually Um, laughing right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that... I was just like, ugh, the Midwest. And now I'm like, oh, the Midwest. (laughs) And like, I've just been having a really good time enjoying this Midwestern niceness and enjoying the beautiful lakes that are in the city. And I guess I had an ex-boyfriend who went to college in the midwest and i would always shit on him and now i think <laughs> i need to eat my shit because i am enjoying myself but i also know that that is like the whimsical nature of like midwestern summers, so beautiful mm. and so like nature-centric and i am bracing myself for more of like the racial tensions that i will face like as a person of color in a predominantly white city that is very largely segregated um i know that i'm going to have to put a lot of work into curating my own like you know hubs of people of color and filipinos Mm -hmm. if there are any out here if you are here hit me up please (laughs) um yeah and i think that something that's been in my mind for like I guess years now um since I first encountered citizen by claudia rankin which is a really awesome um interdisciplinary work um that talks about blackness in america there's a really awesome i guess piece of art um in the book where the phrase I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background is continuously stenciled into um into the page um and I think that's something that I have thought about so much in moving to Denmark in moving to the Midwest and like there have been moments in both of those places where I will walk down a street or walk down a supermarket aisle and just like feel yeah my my race (laughs) feel the fact that i am a woman in a brown body in this white white space um so i think that i'll have a lot of reckoning and parsing through that and working through that and i think that the healthiest thing i can do for myself is find other people of color to like share these experiences with and white allies um but yeah, I'm really curious. I I also noticed a lot um driving around Madison, which is very confusing by the way. May I add <laughs> um yesterday I turned into the wrong side of the road, but we will just not talk about oh my it. God. Driving around, I've been seeing a lot of Black Lives Matter signs, which is super impressive. Even, I think my next door neighbor has one out on their porch, um, which I think was really surprising to me. I think that I just, like, the similar to the way that the rest of America just kind of writes off, like, the South as super racist, I think I've done the same thing with the mis- Midwest, mm. so I was, like, really... Surprised, I guess pleasantly surprised by such public displays of, like, solidarity with people of color. But, again, within the context of this summer, that's not something that is unusual to see. But I'd be curious to see when those signs start coming down, you know? When it stops being trendy to say that you're in support of Black lives.
0: Yeah, that kind of, like, um... Touches on another point, which I think people have like a misconception of is like there are so many people of color in the Midwest. Right. Um, but that's not like the front facing nature of the culture. Um, and yeah, like I even just think about like how many immigrant workers there are mm-hmm. in the Midwest, especially in agriculture. Um, yep. So many migrant workers. Um, and they're like the backbone of an industry that is. Mm-hmm. largely owned and operated by white right. uh corporations and people. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot to think about. And um I thought about that a lot with uh COVID especially because of um meat packing especially has been such a huge like I don't know, it's just scary to think about like how many workers got infected um and have mm-hmm. died. Um but also their lives were less prioritized because they were people of color. So it just goes to show right. that their lives mattered more or less, I should say, than somebody getting a hamburger, which is just so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but who is literally the end end of that chain of production? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of like thinking of the Midwest as like oh flyover states. Or mm-hmm. um, just, like, people in general being less educated. And mm-hmm. that is, uh, ugh, ugh, that, like, just makes me so mad. Because right. the reality is, like, like, people here are educated in ways that maybe people in the city aren't. Like, if you even think about, like, what you were talking about with, like, your relationship now with nature opening up. Like, that's such a different part of yourself that you're going to be able to learn about here, which is so exciting. Um, Mm -hmm. And all to say, like, I think that, like, people really underestimate, I think, um, the value and culture of the Midwest.
1: Mm -hmm. There's definitely so much to learn. Like, I know this is a little bit of a different region, but my brother just finished reading Hillbilly Elegy by jd vance i think is the author um talking about like appalachia Mm. and like blue collar whiteness in appalachia um and how yeah they're just like different universes that we write off and like that have value in a lot of different ways and have been like i guess publicly devalued in the the recent in the recent centuries decades um (laughs) as we've moved to the coasts and really valued like industrialization and like cities yeah
0: i think a lot about even like my job like or my career because i work in entertainment and the thought has always been go to the coast Mm
1: -hmm. you know
0: gain a lot of industry experience and then maybe i'll be able to come back to the midwest and you know, plant it here and grow something here. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the reality is that there's so much happening here as well, and I think we need to start like taking those, like deconstructing those notions of where, right. like, um, academics are born, where intellectualism is born, um, where culture is born, really. Mm-hmm. Because people think and... of it as like the heart of city life, but it's all over
1: and if we even think about it in the context of our families and our migrations Mm. it's the same exact notion of you must leave where you came from because there are no opportunities there and you must seek it elsewhere in order to bring it back or just stay wherever that is and build a life there you know i think that yeah there are a lot of conversations about that especially with like um, Philippinex-like diasporic academia versus, like, academia in the Philippines and, like, what you were just saying with midwestern versus coastal- coastal opportunities, (laughs) I would say. Yeah.
0: To end our little episode on race, um, For our Nook segment, now we have the question, what is your message to your younger self?
1: Radhan, would you like to start? Yeah. um, I think in the context, there are many things that I would like to tell my younger self, (laughs) but I think in the context of our conversations today, I would tell her, oh, little brown girl, all the things that make you you there's nowhere that you are going to ever be able to hide it and shove it down you can do that as much as you want to but they're not gonna go away um they're gonna resurface when they need to or when you're ready for them and that's going to make your life and your artwork that much richer so honor the things that make you You, especially the things that make you different. And yeah, you'll really come to love all those things in time. Aww. Yeah.
0: And if nothing else, you got a lot of writing material. Yep. (laughs) A lot of trauma (laughs) there. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I would say. uh, I didn't want to have this answer because I feel like it's like the cheesiest answer of all time and it's also like the kind of answer that I never would have wanted when I was younger Hmm. which was it gets better so I don't know how to rephrase that in a way to say just keep believing in yourself you are clearly strong enough to where you're carrying yourself through these experiences and not only are you getting through them you are learning so much Mm -hmm. from them so if anything you're already like such a strong person that honestly I look up to because I like honestly now that things have quote unquote gotten better and obviously I still have a lot to learn confidence wise and everything I would say like I was so much braver when I was younger Mm. because like I look up to you that's all I'll say because now I'm I think about all the things I've done in the past and I'm like what how did I do that or say that
1: and yeah just know you're a lot stronger than you think you are and you only really recognize your strength retrospectively most of the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you'd like
0: us to answer a question, please email us at the Brown Girls Journal Pod at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for listening. And thank you for going on this journey with us. This is the yeah. end of our first season. And we really uh finished on a heavy note, so thanks for enduring (laughs) yeah and we can't wait to see y'all in the new year 2021 please be better than 2020
0: (laughs) all right we'll see you guys later
1: bye this podcast was written and produced by Rodlin may banting and anushka dar Audio edited by Anush Gadar and marketing done by Rodlin May Banting. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Brown Girls Journal. That's B R W N G R L S Journal.
0: Background music provided by Epidemic Sound.
1: And our logo was illustrated by Molly Caroline Designs. Thank you for listening and keep an eye out for our next episode in two weeks. We'll see you there.